Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. Big announcement, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People will be available this coming Wednesday, May 15th. It'll be available on Amazon. It will be available on uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, anywhere you go to buy books, you should be able to get a copy of Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. It will be available as an electronic book and a paperback. Uh, and then an audio book is uh, yet to come uh, later this year. Um, and I it couldn't be more thrilled uh, about the release of this book. I've uh, been talking about it for, for so long. I can't wait for people to read it. Fans of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, I think are really going to enjoy it. It picks up right where Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees left off. Uh, for those of you that have read it, you know it ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. The first chapter is literally the exact moment uh, after Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees uh, ends. And don't be thinking, oh, well, if we're going to end right after the previous book, does that mean we have to wait for the alligator people? No. You get alligator people in chapter three. Uh, with Banneker Bones one, there was a lot of... Um, characters getting to know each other, establishing the setting, establishing uh, them before the action really escalated. Uh, so it escalates a little bit slower. And then about mid-book, it just becomes an action story uh, with uh, the boys on jetpack shooting robot bees with EMP blast rifles. And it's, it's basically a Marvel film uh, for the last half or so. But with the sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, you already know who everybody is. So we start with alligator people attacking the chapter three and we just go right to the end. Um, in some ways, I think this is a spiritual sequel to Altogether Now a Zombie Story, just in that it is the uh, tightest, most action-packed novel I've written since with a cliffhanger every chapter, although, of course, with Altogether Now, that was a, a little bit for an older audience. Banneker Bones were having fun, but we've got monsters and they're chasing folks. Uh, so Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, check it out on Wednesday, May 15th, coming up right next week. Uh, if you like it, please leave a review. Uh, if your library doesn't have a copy, cost you nothing. You're going there to get uh, all of the uh, books. Uh, anyway, uh, stop by the librarian's desk and just request a copy of Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. That way you get to read it for free, and hopefully other folks at the library will find it and they'll get to read it as well. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some adult horror novels. Um, you know what they are. Mentioned all together now, all right now. Pizza delivery, always a good time. And the Book of David, five volume serial. Uh, if you want the first chapter of the Book of David, chapter one is available to download for free uh, wherever fine ebooks. Uh, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, and whenever you're listening to this, and so, by the way, is Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beast. So if you're hearing me say all this exciting stuff about Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and you haven't read the first book, it's going to be okay. You can go and download that free ebook whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Um, for more, head to middlegradeninja.com. Uh, coming up here on the podcast, we will have Daniel Jose Older here next week, uh, hopefully on Monday, although we're going to be talking about his new book, the sequel to Dactyl Hill Squad, the second book in that series. And because that is launching on Tuesday, hopefully we'll be able to keep our Monday date. But I just touched base with him, and he's very excited about coming and talking with us. But he's also, as you might imagine, got a very jam-packed week. So we'll be talking with Mr. Older this week, uh, sorry, next week. Uh, tonight, we are talking with one of my oldest online friends, who I'm now talking with personally for the first time, author Jessica Lawson. Jessica, how are you? <laughs> 
Hi, I'm great, Rob. How are you? I am wonderful. I'm excited to have you here. Uh, why don't we? Where it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, why don't we uh, start? If you would, just tell esteemed audience a little bit about yourself and yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, I did not go to school for writing. I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. I actually got my bachelor's degree in Spanish, and then I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with that. So I went to graduate school, <laughs> and I went to graduate school for outdoor recreation and natural resource management. By then, I really loved outdoor education, outdoor programming, and I thought I wanted to be a state park manager. So I went ahead and got a job that used neither of my degrees for a while. I worked in the nonprofit sector. Um, and I ended up not even starting to write until after the birth of my first child. And I was staying home a lot. And actually, I had a daughter who napped really, really well. And so I had these hours during the day when I started watching a show that everyone had already watched. So I was watching it on reruns. It was called Gilmore Girls. And it was during that time that I started just jotting stuff down and big surprise it was a novel about a small town exactly like the small town in gilmore girls so that novel was obviously a big fail that was my first novel it was an adult one i went on to write seven more books and that's when i started looking up things about querying around my second book although i did query that first one and got a couple of bites but once they read past the first 10 pages, yeah, it, it was not too good, so. Is it available um, on a uh, Gilmore Girls fan fiction blog at this moment? No, no, it's not available anywhere. It is in a deep, deep drawer somewhere, <laughs> as, as it should be. Um, no, but I, I just started learning to write, and that was a time when I kind of educated myself online. I love that there's so much online. There's so many resources, um, blogs such as yours, I didn't even know how to query people. I look back on my first query letters before I started following. There's um, Nathan Nathan Bransford. Was that his name? Do you remember Absolutely. him? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, read his tweets every day. Yeah, yeah. Bransford, and if I, you're listening, hi. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And Query Shark, and I entered Miss Blogs uh, or Miss Miss Snark's first victim. The online contest. I remember being on the highway with my two kids. Uh, on the way driving from Colorado to Iowa, pulling over so that I could um, enter one of the contests because you know only the first like 50 get in, so I could time it perfectly because I I learned the method. You actually hit send about like three seconds before the window opens, so I got it anyway. It, it was a really really exciting time, full of rejections, and <laughs> I I didn't care a bit, and I wasn't the kind of person to keep on revising the same novel because I, I don't even know why. I think in my heart I knew most of them weren't maybe the best idea I had in me. So I, I was already writing the next book by the time I started querying and I always thought the next idea was always the best one. So I went through eight novels that I wrote. The rest of them were, I had two middle or two young adult and the rest were middle grade and I queried all eight and then with the ninth, I finally published The Actual and Truthful Adventures of Becky Thatcher. I got an agent who actually wanted to take me on as a client, which was great. And we worked on it some more, editing it some more. And the rest is history. I've been with that agent and the same publishing company, Simon & Schuster, ever since. So. And do we want to set your agent's name for anyone eager to uh, maybe reach out to her? Or him? Her name is Tina Dubois, and she's with ICM. 
Tina Dubois. If you're mm-hmm. ever curious to come on a podcast, I'd be happy to chat with you as well. She's great. Shameless. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> and so um, what is it you think that separated the actual and truthful adventures of Becky Thatcher? And I'm being facetious because I've read it. I, I know it's wonderful. But what do you think it is that's, that uh, set that one apart from the previous, you said, eight novels? Yes. Well, I think I think part of it is that I, I was starting to get better as a writer. And I could see that because I was starting to get rejections with feedback in them, which which is gold. I always used to love that. So I knew I was kind of getting better as a writer. I always took the lessons learned in the last novel and applied them to the new one. But I honestly think it was probably because it was a hook that was marketable to the agent, possibly. I mean, obviously, they look at the writing first and foremost, but it was um, it's a retelling of Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer from Becky Thatcher's point of view. And I think, you know, sometimes it's just maybe the market feels right for the agent to feel like they could sell something. You know, it just depends. I don't know. I got lucky. Well, I don't know. I don't think anybody that uh, writes eight novels and, and works their butt off and then finally <laughs> finds success can be said to be just lucky. <laughs> well, luckily. So, um, <laughs> and you, you take me back. I remember Miss Snark's uh, first victim. I, I used to submit to those costume, or contests, got into a couple. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very exciting. And yeah. scored a couple of literary agent interviews uh, for the blog that way. So it was nice. a good time. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, Janet Reed uh, is someone mm-hmm. that I have, um, I think, been told maybe, maybe, and no about five times because I've forever tried to to get her to face the seven questions as well. Oh, One very day. nice. It's One on day. the it's on the bucket list. Okay. <laughs> to talk with the Janet, if show. you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh so much to talk with you about uh, your novels, about writing, but I saw something in your bio that I just can't let go. This oh, isn't no. Ellen. I don't usually ask guests to sing, but in your bio you specify that you sing songs about lost socks. Can you sing us a song about lost oh. socks? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Well, I in our house we are big makeup song singers. We are big into wordplay, big into rhyming songs. I have songs about poop and pee like you wouldn't believe from when my daughters were young and learning to be potty trained. There's the songs about lost socks are kind of filled with words of frustration as well because I'm I'm the mom who always, you know, has to deal with the lost socks, but I don't I don't know that it would add to the viewer's experience to hear me sing at this point. Maybe maybe another time. Gentle listener, you've you've been uh, bailed out. Thank you. <laughs> thank, you thank you. <laughs> Shouldn't have put that in my bio. <laughs> I wanted to, uh, to ask you this because you're coming up on the launch of your fifth book and that's going to be next year. Um, when is that uh, fifth book coming up? It was going to be next year. I am currently in the midst of a revision, um, a point of view change. So it's going to take a bit. So we are now scheduled for spring of 2021. Okay. Yeah. And you'll come back. Uh, you'll get me an arc and we'll uh, we'll go through it and we'll talk about it. And it'll be an exciting uh, Absolutely. Fun, fun, fun. But I wanted to ask you, you've got... Uh, four wonderfully published novels with a fifth on the way. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of folks, you know, spend their, their whole live stream and just getting the one novel published. And then sometimes either because publishing is what publishing is or because it's just hard to write another novel. 
Um, they never end up following up that debut. Yet you've managed to spawn into a successful writing career. Uh, so mm-hmm. what what would you say that has maybe separated you? What have you done that's allowed you to continue to publish and continue to be successful? Um, gosh, I don't know. You know, I've continued to write, first of all, and, and also my literary agent is a godsend. She's wonderful. She is a miracle worker. She does magic. So I, I would not be published without her. Um, or at least not, not the amount of times I, she gives me advice. I, just because I have five books out doesn't mean that I haven't during that time written and pitched books that don't get picked up. So I think there's a perseverance key in there. And maybe if an idea isn't working, um, we talk about, we talk about, is this going to be something that will be marketable at this time. And I'm always encouraged to write whatever's in my heart, always, always. But there is a discussion of if I pitch two or three ideas, you know, I get feedback on what the thoughts are on on each of those sets of pages if I pitch different things. So I'm just I'm surrounded by people who give me really good advice. And I've been very lucky and very blessed in, in the fact that I've gotten editors who happen to be interested in things. Waiting for Augusta was my third book. It happened to be pitched to an editor whose father played a lot, a lot of golf. And it's it's a book about a father who played a lot, a lot of golf. So, so sometimes it's just those, you don't know, it's just the universe kind of helps you out for some reason in certain, certain times. Kicks you in the pants in other times, but. <laughs> No, once in a while, something comes along just when you need it. That's uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things that, uh, there's a lot of things that keep me writing, but that is something that I have noticed, and and it could be just that I'm so focused that I'm going to do this either way, and then it seems like because I've been so focused and and working that the universe has lent me things, Uh, but it does seem like if I'm uh, in need of a story idea or I'm stuck on on a manuscript, something will come into my life that's like, oh, that, that, that is exactly what I need. Let me incorporate that in. Yep. And that, Jessica, is why reality is a simulation. All right, good talk. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, excellent. And then um, here's a question I've been uh, asking more and more authors. This is something that I've been wondering myself. Who is your ideal reader when you're writing? Oh, goodness. Um... Well, my ideal reader is anyone who picks up my book. There's no requirement. <laughs> anyone who picks it up. Oh, that is ideal. Um, when I'm writing, honestly, I am trying to put my shoes in that character's shoes or put my feet in that character's shoes. If I put my shoes in their shoes, that would just be awkward. Um, but I'm good just- material for a future song. Yes, yes, yes. All good stuff. I should be taking notes. Um, no, I'm not necessarily writing the story directly for the reader. I feel like I'm writing the story for the character because this character is kind of spoke to me. And if I get to the point, I have lots of projects. Not all of them are ones that I finish. But if I really connect with a character enough, I feel a responsibility to them to finish the story. And that's how I know I'm going to finish a story when I really am like, oh man, this kid needs a happy ending or something like that. 
So I, I feel like I'm not thinking about it. Does that sound bad? I'm not thinking about the reader while I'm writing the story. I'm thinking about the character and the journey and trying my best to sink myself into, into the character's shoes. I don't know. What's your ideal reader? Oh, yeah, version of me. Okay. Okay. Very nice. So I just think back, what would what would me have loved? Oh, probably a Batman-like character who had to fight monsters. That that would really excite me. Excellent, excellent. I guess I guess for my books, anyone I wouldn't necessarily say ideal reader, but like a, a reader who maybe is looking for something. I about three out of my four books have pretty open themes of grief and grieving. And so maybe maybe a reader who might be able to find something that helps them somewhere in my character's journey. That would that would make me feel good as a writer if I could do that. Make someone feel a little less alone. I wanted to ask you about that because I, I was noticing as I was going back through, oh, yeah, there there is kind of a lot of grief in uh, yeah. in your books. Why, without getting too personal, uh, yeah. why why do you think that is? Um. Well, you can you can get personal um, if you like. Um, and a lot of people, you know, kind of make jokes about the dead parents and middle grade literature, got to get them out of the way so the kids can do stuff. But for the case of my first published novel, and part of me wonders if I didn't put a little bit more of my heart into this one. Uh, in this story, Becky Thatcher has, she moves to St. Petersburg with her family. Her, her father is Judge Thatcher. Her mom is in a deep depression due to the death of her brother, her beloved brother, John and Becky wears his clothes and she goes out adventuring and she has his marble sack and it helps her feel close to him. But um, the character was named after my brother-in-law, John. I started writing this book um, after he passed away and he was 34 and he left my sister widowed with a five-year-old and a three-year-old daughter. And so he, he was the closest thing I've ever had to a brother. So part of that part of the book was written for him. And I think that almost everything I write has a has a piece of that in it. So, Does that, I'm assuming that uh, fulfills something within you that helps you with the grieving process at the same time you're helping the reader. I think it does. I think it definitely does. Yeah, it's and I think that a lot of writers do that. We process our own emotions. We process our own beliefs, and we're we're trying to. I don't know what. When I, I guess I write for the same reasons I read. I, I want to go on a journey and I, I like to find out what kind of person I want to be because, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there, but I'm still growing. What kind of person I am and what kind of person I'd like to be. So there you I go. think what happens is you get to be 99 and a half and you go, oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> At the end. <laughs> Oh, I've got a uh, a book um, that um, uh, was 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 one that my agent loved. Um, we had a few editors that were were very interested in, and and we couldn't make it work. Um, but it's about a, a girl dealing with uh, grief, um, and it's one of those that uh, past a certain point, I I held it back, and it's on my shelf not to stay, but it's there because I'm of an age where not only am I getting up there, but um, some people very close to me are, are getting up there as well. And I'm, I'm going to need that book. I don't want to do yeah. that now uh, when I'm when I'm not grieving. I'm yeah. going to bring that back and revisit that when I need that catharsis. Uh, oh, me. we're going to turn this into a sob fest, Rob. I know. 
<laughs> Let me tell you about something that very sad that happened to me in my childhood. <laughs> nope, we're gonna we're gonna pivot away and we're gonna talk more about uh, Becky Thatcher. Because okay. um, that was the first of your books that I read, obviously, my first uh, book anybody read. Um, and I, what struck me at the time, and it still strikes me, is just what a brilliant idea. I was uh, so impressed because I remember seeing that, you know, that the publisher did what you would hope they would do, which is repackage it uh, with Twain's original um, uh, Huckleberry yeah. fan and uh, Tom Sawyer. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my, who is this brilliant woman? That idea was just there. Anybody could have grabbed it, and, and, and nobody did. And then yeah. Jess Lawson, here she comes. She's got it. So I got did lucky. That, uh, where did that come from? What was it that wanted you to, to play around in Mark Twain's universe? Um, well, first of all, when I saw that they actually put them in a set, and then there's this box set that says, like, Mark Twain and Jessica Lawson. I was like, oh, my gosh, I peaked. I'm done. This, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my my dad's a fan of that one. But um, this came, of all things, I was dusting, which is one of those things that as a kid, like you don't think anyone really does, but I was dusting in Colorado, my little bookshelf in our little house. And I was, I have a couple different copies of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So I, I was dusting the top of it and and I pulled it out and I started thinking about like, why it was that I there's a girl character in there, Becky Thatcher, the main girl character, and I never really connected with her. I always wanted to be Tom or preferably Huck, who had a little bit of a harsher background, but more freedom. But I just felt sorry for her. I felt like she didn't get to have any adventures. Like, I'm sure Mark Twain, you know, I'm never going to question the writer's intent or anything like that, but I felt bad for her. I was thinking to myself, I would, I was a lot more like Huck and Tom as a girl. And, and obviously the times were different and she didn't have a choice, but I found myself wanting desperately for Becky Thatcher to have some adventure and, and to be a little bit more tough and, and to not want to marry Tom <laughs> and all, all this stuff. So, so I went ahead and I wrote it and Again, like no expectations here. This was the ninth book I had started. You know, it was, I keep your hopes high, keep your expectations low. That was my motto. I didn't expect it to really go anywhere. And I had fun with it. And the voice, for whatever reason, came easily. And to this day, I've never written a draft as fast. And, and that may be because I have children, but I think it's just because every book I write gets harder for me to write. But six weeks for a first draft. And that is, I've never written anything that fast. So obviously it had a ton of work to do after that, but um, my agent and I worked on it and then it really didn't need that much revision by the time it went to the editorial board, which is why it was, after it was accepted, it was published the following year. And I know you know this sometimes, sometimes you get a book deal and it takes two years for it to come out. But um, I was just really, really lucky, but that's where the idea came from, dusting. <laughs> Just kind well, of a Becky Thatcher thing to do. Yeah. You heard it here. Authors yeah. dust, dust more. Yeah, <laughs> dust, dust that ideas. bookshelf. <laughs> and what um so of course the, the double edged sword of that is on the one hand, oh my oh my gosh, I'm pub, I'm uh, in a box set with Mark Twain, which is the most wonderful thing that could happen. But oh my god. I'm in a box set with Mark Twain. People are going to be looking, are you as good as Mark Twain? Which is not 
Um, and, and I think you are, but it's it's not a reasonable <laughs> question to ask you of anybody. Uh, what a what a lot of pressure. So how was it that you because when you read that book, you know that it's it's not quite Mark Mark Twain. It's it's um, it's obviously obviously hey, it's not Mark Twain, but the um, uh, the the <laughs> prose and the style are so very similar that you read it up and it is of a piece. Like oh, this is where the story continues. This this makes sense. So how did you go about getting your your cadence and your prose down to a Mark Twain type rhythm? Well, and here's the thing. I'd read that book a lot. I've read a lot of Mark Twain short stories, things like that. Um, and at the time when I picked it up and had ye old epiphany, <laughs> um, I hadn't read it in several years. It's just part of, you know, where you've read a book so much and you know the story and you feel like you know the background, but I hadn't read it. And once I got my idea, I was afraid to read it again because I did not want to copy the voice. I tried to make it a point not to read it. So what I did was I got up on Cliff's Notes, you know, that that site where kids who haven't read the book try to cheat and get down the details so they can pass their school tests. Oh, goodness. No, I would never visit a site no, like that. No, I would only no. ever read the book. No, or to help you with a summary. So what I did is I made sure I had my plot points down and I looked at character names and I saw things that I would want to switch things that I wouldn't necessarily want to include and how to kind of make my own narrative that fit into it. Because in my book, Samuel Clemens is in fact a character. The book takes place in 1860 when Samuel Clemens was in real life, a riverboat pilot on the Mississippi. So in my version, it has him, you know, his, his boat gets kind of docked and has to stay there in the fictional town of St. Petersburg. And he, stays with the Sawyers and he's kind of observing the town's happenings. And if you look closely and if you read the book, you'll see snippets here and there of, of things that take place in Tom Sawyer. You know, there's a discussion about like faking your own funeral or something like that, which is a scene out of the book. And, and there's a kind of a twist at the end that really gives you insight into um, her brother, John, and John's place in, in the work of Mark Twain. It was such a smart thing to do because obviously I'm, I'm I'm a Jessica Lawson fan. I was excited to read the book, and I said, "Well, of course, why wouldn't you want to write uh, another book set in the Twain universe when you can do it? When you, I, I wouldn't do it because I don't have the skill, but you do, oh. and you should. But I'm sure that there are um, um, readers out there who have very passionate feelings about Mr. Twain that say, "Oh, who is this Jane come lately gonna gonna write a new Mark Twain novel? It's so smart to have Samuel Clemens featured in there and just to as a way within the story itself to acknowledge that yes, we all know that this isn't officially canon. You can still write your uh, your your theses and, and, and whatever it is that yeah. you're you're doing with uh, the original Twain work. But here's something new and exciting that you can enjoy. That's just such a such a stroke of genius that I, I thought on your part when I read it. Oh, you're sweet. Thank you. Yes, uh, there will be no other books in the in the Twain universe. I don't think on my part. I think one was probably pushing it, and we pulled it off. So. <laughs> then uh, your next book. This is something that that fascinates me about you because you, I imagine. I, I don't know, and I'm, oh, I want to find out. I imagine you you completely throw yourself into another world. Uh, when you're writing, just because your books take place in such drastically different settings uh, with drastically different characters. I mean, you you start in the Twain universe. Your next book, Nook, Nook and Crannies, is, what was it, 1806, 1807? 
1906. Not even close. Wrong century. That's terrible. Yes. yes. <laughs> and it's uh, very much in the in the style of of Raw Dahl. Um, and it's and it works. I was like, oh, who is this genius that she can switch <laughs> so completely? Because there's there's a little bit of DNA in there. You know, you're reading uh, the same author. Because I, I think every author leaves their signature whether they want to or not. But it yeah. is dramatically different. And then, of course, waiting for Augusta, you're in, I think, 1972? Yep. Yes, got one. All right. Good. Yep. Very good. <laughs> I had to think about it, and I wrote it. <laughs> so you're, uh, and then now uh, you're in New York for uh, Under the Bottle Bridge. So, yeah. And, and wildly uh, different characters. So, what I want to know is how do you approach a story and a character? especially given that it's so disparate from, I assume, your life experience and your previous writing experience? Yeah. Um, that's a good idea. I just, I have a lot of ideas. For Nooks and Crannies, I was actually writing that and I pitched it to someone at a conference while Becky Thatcher was still out there. I had already kind of given up on that manuscript. So um, I'd already thrown myself into that. I grew up, do you ever, did you ever watch any like BBC shows? Like Absolutely. are you being, are you being served? Faulty Towers, that kind of thing, and Monty Python type of stuff. So I love a good, I love British humor, um, that kind of voice. And I grew up watching that kind of thing. And, and I just, I don't know. I just, I love the idea of the like Clue meets Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I did, I did like Roald Dahl as a child. I was a huge fan. So this, this girl, it started kind of with a name actually with her, Tabitha Crumb. And I, I keep a list of character names. And Tabitha, I had for the longest time, and I tried to find her story. She was in like two or three different stories before I found the right story for her name that fit her. And I was like, that's who she is. And I love the idea of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And, and since I like, you know, British mysteries, I'm a big Agatha Christie fan. So I still remember reading, and then there were none, and being very, very shocked by the ending and things like that. And I don't even know what made me think I could write a mystery. I haven't written one since, and there's a reason. <laughs> it, was re <laughs> it was really hard um, for me. Um, but I have no idea where the different ideas, you're right, they're all over the place, aren't they? But I think that's also what, um, I think my agent kind of likes that because it doesn't, if, if you're really good at one thing, you can, you can do that one thing, over and over and in different variety of ways, but I don't, I don't know that I could, I don't think I'm that good at imagining more than one story in each setting. I don't know. I've got a lot of voices in my head, Rob. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> and they all live in different places. <laughs> now we come to it. <laughs> so with a, a list of characters kind of waiting to find a home, how many, how many folks have you got on the list at any given time? Um, on my, like how many works in progress right now? You said that Tabitha was a name you a held character. on to. I've, I've only got two that are floaters and I've set them aside for now. I've got three different works in progress that are going on right now, but they've been kind of been pushed aside as I work on the revision for book five. But that's one of my, you know, people sometimes say, do you ever get writer's block? And I say, absolutely. And when I do, I switch to a different project that excites me. So I just have multiple projects going on at one time. If I get stuck on one, I go to the other one. That's smart. And you, um, 
So how many projects are you usually working on at any, at, at any one point usually? At least two or three. But if I get to a point where I get super into into one and I'm like, all right, this one, this one, eventually one of them pushes their way, shoves their way to the front of the line and shoves the rest backwards. It's my turn. So they, and they'll get full attention. But right now, yeah. nobody's winning the race. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you noticed a particular uh, word count or, or spot where that story will start to take hold? Um, I usually have to get past 10, 12,000. It's 20,000 words is when I know that I'm continuing the story, probably around 20. That's when I, you know, it feels like, you know, getting over, the, not that words and writing is about word count, but that it feels kind of like a bit of a hump to me. And that's when I, because I'm a writer who I, I'm extremely, my characters rather are extremely chatty and my <laughs> descriptions are heavy. I do a lot of cutting at the end. So my drafts tend to be longer and then I'll, you know, slash what I need to. How long is your usual first draft? Mm, they keep getting longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, first draft, any around 50 probably are my books, which you know, middle grade books can range anywhere, you know, it depends on the book from, you know, 30 to, it depends what genre you're, you're writing. What are the Banneker books? Uh, the first one is 58,000. Uh, and the second one is 78,000, uh, which sounds long, uh, but it goes by quick. Uh, okay. and, um, the original draft was 130. So there's a lot of blood on the, on the cutting room floor. Nope. Yep, I can relate to that. Yeah, I think Waiting for Augusta is 72, so it's pretty, which is par, by the way, 72, par, golf. Oh, yeah, golf oh, <laughs> And I didn't even, I didn't even plan that, but yeah, so they keep getting longer, and I think the book needs what the book needs, and editors help us, you know, decide, hey, this is kind of, you know, pacing is off. Pacing is a big, big thing for me in my editing process. I'm constantly trying to, you know, do what you do and all together now. <laughs> that, that was the easiest going. book to keep pacing because every chapter ends with somebody being chased by a zombie. Yeah, yeah. I, it was a I page wonder turner. why I'm writing other genres. Let's just stick with zombies because there's it's always a, a threat. Other books, yep. people talk, and then that just ends the chapter. Yeah, we talk. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> Maybe uh, I'll write a zombie book. Maybe you're inspiring me. <laughs> I think you would be great at it if you wanted to. I would read it. Well, thank you. We'll I would. Come I would. Here and we'll talk zombies all day. I might. Well, I, you would be a main resource for me if I ever did try to write a zombie novel. <laughs> Absolutely, I am uh, always looking to get thanked in the back of books. I would be more than happy to. Uh, and you uh, would to, be. Uh, the basics are uh, shoot them in the head. They're dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's Good all you need to, to know. know. Good to know. <laughs> so, uh, what is your? Uh, writing schedule like do you keep a regular schedule at this point or is it when the spirit moves you you know it's one of those things where you hear different strategies and you know we've all heard a real writer writes every day a real writer makes the time to write every day well you and i are parents and we know that sometimes you know you can't write every day sometimes you can't write for three days or four days at a time it's just not possible um and my routine has become, especially because I, I work full time now. So I work, I get up early in the morning now. So 
if I can, if I'm if I'm motivated, I'll get up at four and try to write until about six, six fifteen or so until my kids get up. And then or and that's when I do, you know, emailing or look on my social media um, involvement has gone quite down lately. But um, then I get my kids up, get them ready for school, get ready for work, come home, do homework, do activities. If I have I am not a night person, so I've, I'm definitely my creativity is much better in the morning. So that's why I choose to go to bed early and then get up early. So if I can't find the time to write. I'm constantly thinking about stories. I'm sure you're the same way. I think all writers are, where the stories and characters are always with us. We're always having little snippets of conversation or little epiphanies about plot. And I'll just write something down, you know, whether it's on a post-it or the back of a receipt and stuff it in my pocket or in my purse. And, you know, my, my husband used to throw those away and it used to make me so mad. I thought it was garbage. I was like, that was brilliant. And, well, what did it say? I don't know. <laughs> That's why I wrote it, was, it down. It was very important. <laughs> That's grounds for divorce. Yeah. You threw away my story ideas. Yeah. Nope, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I I just try to prepare myself as well as I can because I don't have a lot of time. So I try to get my ducks in a row so that when I am writing or revising or whatever, it's go time. So. Okay. So 4 a.m. I assume there's coffee involved at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and you're on social media block. You don't check the Twitters, the Facebook, forget it for now. Just yeah. straight to it. Do you yeah. have like a little ritual to, to get you in the right headspace or? Um, I check my calendar for the day to make sure and for the week ahead to make sure I'm not forgetting any children's activities or anything like that that are up ahead. Um, I'll go downstairs, make my tea or my coffee and try not to make too much noise so the kids don't wake up and then kind of just stretch a little bit and, and get to work. There's there's a saying that I love. Um, what is it? Um, every day, and it, this person woke up at 8 o'clock, so like every day I get up at 8 o'clock to write, and I wait for inspiration. And if inspiration hasn't shown up by 8.05, I start without it. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> so I think it's something where you just you just have to pound it out sometimes. I find that I have to schedule about 15 to 20 minutes uh, beforehand uh, to to waste time on social media um, and to, I don't know, to putter around the room, stretch, look at my computer very fiercely, like, I'm coming, just not yet. <laughs> then <laughs> 20 minutes in, like, all right, that's yeah. enough, Can't get, get to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. But Sometimes I'll do that, yeah. I. I have my social media again has gone down quite a bit. Sometimes I'll I'll check on Twitter real quick and then you know check the news really quickly to see if there's anything to be happy about in the world. <laughs> um, and then I'll I'll try to get to work. You know I read local news. Um, we we get the the local paper, and it's the most boring thing in the world. It's always somebody uh, coming on with the, they've got the antiques in their home, and someone's coming to take photos, oh, no. uh, or they they're uh, somebody is uh, excited because it's five generations of one family that's that's gathered together. It's like oh, yeah. there is good in the world. That's that's oh, the news I want to read. I like that stuff. Yes, that's nice. And then, what are your uh, reading habits? Reading, I do mostly at night. That's when I, I read um, before I go to bed. Um, 
my reading habits are that I usually have a huge stack of books and every time I go to the library I get too many books and there's always something overdue and that's just the way of it and I consider it a donation to my library. I'm doing my job by <laughs> keeping them a little late but I read at night um, and on weekends when I can if I'm taking a child to a practice I'll take a book and um, do as much as I can or I'll be working there too. I think right now I'm reading, what am I reading? I have a memoir I'm reading. It's, oh, what is it? Heartland. It's a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. I think so. So I got my nonfiction in. And then, let's see, a friend just recently handed me uh, The Woman in Cabin 10, which is a thriller that came out a while ago. Um, I'm reading, what else am I reading? Vera Hiranandani's uh, The Night Diary, which recently won some awards. It's a very good book. I just finished The Bridge Home by your previous guest. And that Wonderful was good book. as well. But I like to read, I like to read a mix. I just read Dragons in a Bag by uh, Zeta Elliott. And that's kind of a younger middle grade book. But I like to try to have a variety. Um, but yeah, what are you reading lately? Uh, let's see, what am I reading lately? I just finished The Usual Suspects by Maurice Broaddus, uh, and right now I am reading uh, Dr. Hill's Club and getting ready for, to chat with uh, Daniel Jose Older. Oh, I am so excited that you are reading that because I'm excited the next one is coming out, and I love the first one. I actually just pitched it to, um, I, I was doing a Kids Need Mentorship thing with a classroom this year, and I pitched that one. Um, yeah, I love that book. So I'm glad there's. I'm glad it's a series. It's an absolutely wonderful story, and I can't wait to uh, talk with the man himself yeah. uh, and pick his brain about it. Yeah. And uh, I just saw uh, Maurice this uh, weekend at MoCon, and so I got to tell him uh, how much I, I really love the Usual Suspects. That one's coming out in two weeks. Okay. Mark it on your calendar. Um, I should. The esteemed okay. audience, nobody wants to miss the Usual Suspects. Um, and if you're wondering. Are there at least a couple of sly references to the film, The Usual Suspects? I, I can't say, but but there might be. Oh, I think <laughs> you just did say. <laughs> I might have I might have given that away a little bit. Um, what was my uh, next question for you? Something burning. Oh, I know what I need to ask you, uh, Jessica <coughs> Lawson. Yes. Have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? I love that question. That's a great question. Um, I was I, wondering if it was a, a good question because we kept getting no's. But then, esteemed audience, if you listen to the previous episode with literary agent Alana Roth Parker, by God, we got a close encounter. Are we going to get another one? Jessica Lawson. Not personally, but I know that there are people who who have seen them, who believe that they've seen a UFO, and I believe that they believe that they saw one. And um, here, you know what? Let's go with the quote on the back of Waiting for Augusta. It says, some things are true whether other people believe you or not. Beautiful. So there's my answer on that. I, I think it would be arrogant to think that maybe we're the only intelligent beings in the whole entire universe. I don't know what kind of form that intelligent life would take. I think we probably as humans probably in our image think that they would look a certain way or, you know, but I don't, I don't know. I am open. 
I'm a writer. I have an imagination, and I would not be surprised, I'll tell you that, if I saw one. Oh, I think they're, they're out there. But even if I always say, if, if somebody could definitively prove to me, but my, my grandmother saw one, my grandmother would not lie to me. Exactly. Um, That's what I'm but, saying. But uh, if someone could say to me, Rob, we've, we've, we've been able to prove this mathematically. There's absolutely no flying saucers, never have been. I wouldn't want them to tell me that because I like living in a world where that's absolutely possible. Exactly. Yep. And what, what is it? Area 51? Is that what it's called? Area? Yeah, the uh, Nevada test site. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty curious about that. Why don't you write a book about that? <laughs> I did. Uh, oh, Area 51 is uh, featured yeah. prominently in the Book of yeah. David. Um, and there was a recent documentary, I can't remember the name of it, it's just come out, uh, about Bob Lazar, uh, who, of course, is the, the man responsible for outing uh, Area 51. And it, it's amazing. It doesn't definitively prove anything, but they just add up all of the things he said were true back in, I believe it was the late 70s, early 80s, when he came to prominence, that everyone said that can't be possible. And now all these years later, his story hasn't changed, and those things have been borne out. So there you go. There, there, there's your evidence and your smoking gun. <laughs> well, it's like it's like one of my favorite shows, or my daughter's and my favorite shows, Finding Bigfoot. We haven't watched it for a while. She used to be obsessed with it. We would watch every episode. We just loved the the. I want to say characters, but they're not characters. They're real people. But um, we love them. And as they always said, like you can't prove that it's not out there. Nobody's, you know, you just can't. And there are different cultures and they go all over the, the world and there are different cultures that have their own version of Bigfoot. And I say, why not? And I don't know if you've noticed, there's like a lot of Bigfoot action in Kidlit. Like in the last four or five years, have you noticed? There's oh, yeah. like the, the littlest Bigfoot, Jennifer Weiner, and, and, and oh, who is it? I think, does Ellen Potter? Someone else has a Bigfoot book out. And I think... Lindsay Eager's latest had some reference to Bigfoot. I'm not sure, but I feel like it's all over the place. I'm going to go ahead and plug a book that I hope to be thanked in the back of, and that's uh, Laura Martin's upcoming Hoax for Hire. Uh, and that's got uh, some Bigfoot, some uh, all the cryptids, awesome. uh, some Loch Ness monsters, some some flying saucers, all the, all the good stuff. So look oh, forward I to totally. that. I think that one comes out in August, and it is well worth reading. Good. I totally believe in Nessie. There's something there. The Loch Ness monster. So, oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I always like to think that maybe somewhere there's a flying saucer, and piloting it is the Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot and Elvis. And they're, they're drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon, <laughs> and they're singing "Love Me Tender." Oh, <laughs> that is a sweet image. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, uh, back, back, back to Earth a little bit. Uh, wanted to ask you about waiting for a guest. In fact, let's let's start there. Okay. Uh, if you would just uh, give a esteemed audience who might not be familiar kind of an overview of the novel. Okay. This is Waiting for Augusta. It is, that is, in case that, it's not, that is a Colorado Book Award sticker. Um, it won the Colorado Book Award, so they gave you Yeah, it did. Yeah, yay. Um, it's a book about a boy named Benjamin Putter, and he truly believes that he has a golf ball stuck in his throat been to doctors. Doctors have said it's not there, but he knows it's there. He believes it's there. And his father at the opening of the novel has died about a month before the book starts. And his father was a barbecue and golf man through and through, obsessed with Augusta National. Now they keep the dad's cremation urns 
or his ashes in the kitchen because it was his favorite favorite place to be. So they keep it in the kitchen. And one day, Ben, who's starting to feel like he's jumping out of his skin, like he just doesn't belong in his town, starts hearing his dad's ashes talking to him. So yes, this is a book with a talking cremation urn. So long story short, he steals his father's ashes and runs away um, to try to scatter the ashes at his the place where his father wants his ashes scattered, which is the 18th hole of Augusta National Golf Club. And this is during the Masters Tournament. Just happens to be during the Masters Tournament. Had to add some stakes. So, And he sets off with uh, another mysterious runaway who joins him along the way. She's kind of secretive, doesn't talk much, but... Um, or she does talk, just doesn't give him many answers to questions. And together they make their way from Hilltop, Alabama to Augusta, Georgia, via bus, via train, via stolen uh, truck, and some other ways. And you have to see whether or not he can even sneak on the course. And if he does, if he grants his father's last request. And along the way, these two butted heads during their time when his dad was alive, um, Ben's an artist. It's a time when his father doesn't really approve of that. He doesn't think it's tough. He thinks Ben should be like a little bit more of a man maybe and barbecue and golf. And so it's with the talking cremation urn, it's an opportunity for these two people who didn't talk much when dad was alive to get to know each other. So it's a book about second chances and, and miracles and, and kind of growing up and, and letting go. And I love that uh, that metaphor, that idea of uh, a lump in the throat that you've got to swallow being a golf ball. Yeah. <laughs> well, read the book. It might not be a metaphor. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah might, no no spoilers not, here. It's, might not it's, just it's definitely a golf ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the book ends in surgery. <laughs> yes. 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 What I wanted to, to ask, well, I've got a couple of questions um, about all your books, but uh, that one in particular, I wondered on, on its surface, that story doesn't appear to be need or doesn't doesn't appear to be needed to be set in 1972 during desegregation, and yet that gives you so much opportunity to be there. What was it about that setting that spoke to you and was appropriate for that character and that story? Um, I set it in 1972. When I well, do you want to hear how I got the idea for it? Of first? course. Okay, so I was standing in the kitchen with um, my husband and his brother, both huge golfers, and we, as adults do, being slightly morbid, we're talking about what we wanted done with our bodies after we pass away. <laughs> do we want to be buried or do we want to be cremated? And we all said we wanted to be cremated and maybe scattered somewhere. And since my brother-in-law lives at the golf course, practically, he... Um, He's there all the time. Um, oh gosh, he's watching this. Uh, not all the time, Evan. You know, <laughs> Hi, Evan. work and you and Trish go places. But anyway, he he. I told him you probably want to be scattered uh, at Patty Jewett, which is the name of the golf club that he always goes to. And he said, Patty Jewett, no way. I want to be scattered at Augusta. So bam, idea born of a young boy traveling to fulfill his father's final wishes, but. 1972 was important for me um, because it's it's set at Augusta National and and the father really admires this golf course. A lot of people really admire the golf course. A lot of people do. It's beautiful. A lot of golfers today, most of them would say if they could win one major tournament, it would be the Masters because not only do you get invited back every year, but you know it's a beautiful course. Um, and Augusta National is is a, a lot of 
people know, most people know, has a, a deep history of racism. And I didn't necessarily want to write a book about it without making a reference to that. And I wasn't sure how to do that if it was sent in, set in contemporary times. Um, and, you know, we every every place has its history. And, and I didn't want to take away from the idea of the dad glorifying it, but I did think it was important to mention for young readers of today who might not know that. Um, so I said it in 1972. I think, let's see, they started admitting black members in 1990, but um, 1975 was the first year they allowed a black player um, to, to play in the masters. But before then, I mean, it was a long policy of they only had black caddies, only white players, only white members. Um, so I wanted it to be somewhere in that time period, not because it was gonna be a focal point of the story, but because I wanted it acknowledged. Also, uh, Ben, because it was set in that time period, 1972, Ben has a friendship with a black girl from his town. They don't go to the same school. At this time, um, there's segregation still in Alabama in the South, and they needed to do forced integration. So forced desegregation, which means that they would bus people to schools maybe that were white to force integration. And that ended up with the result of a lot of white parents setting up things called segregation academies, AKA private schools. Um, something that still, I think, goes on today um, to avoid having diversity in their school. But Ben's friend starts going to his school and he's great friends with her. He's excited for her to be there. But then all of a sudden there's an incident at the beginning of the book that's kind of referred to, um, it's already happened, and there's an incident in the cafeteria and he doesn't help her, and he should have, and he knows that, and she stops talking to him, she stops talking kind of in general. So he's at this place where he's hurt his friend, his father's died, he he's, doesn't feel like, you know, he loves his art, he doesn't know how to be able to do it, he just wants to run away, and that's when he starts hearing his father's voice. So as they travel and get to know each other, he um, he has these conversations with his father and he comes to realize that, I, th I think the middle grade years are one of those times when young people are starting to realize that the authority figures in their life aren't always right. Um, the people who make the rules aren't always right. They don't always have people's best intentions in mind. And it's a story about, and, and I think if they don't, we risk the danger if they don't start asking questions. That's how, that's how opinions get passed down. They get absorbed by younger generations. They get spoken to the younger generations over and over until the younger generation thinks, hey, that's my opinion too. And um, this is a story about how Ben sees some opinions that his dad has and starts to question them by the end of the book. Um, and so that, that idea of questioning authority fit in with the themes of desegregation and Augusta. Again, not a huge focal point in the story, but also when I was doing research, 1972 pops up for a uh, desegregation, um, a video of uh, parents protesting a bus in Augusta, Georgia, 
in March of 1972, just happened to be after I decided on 1972, bam, there is an actual video of people, parents protesting the bus coming in and kids getting off the bus um, about two weeks before my fictional character would have been going to the master. So it just seemed, you know, we talked about it. It was like one of those moments, well, yeah, I was supposed to set it here and I worked that scene into the book when they got to Augusta, I worked them seeing um, that protest. So that's what I'm telling you. Reality is yeah. a simulation. <laughs> yeah. Let. Uh, what did I want to ask you about? Um, a couple of things. Um, with with um, uh, coming right at something like that, what's the best way to handle such ugliness? or middle grade readers, because on the one hand, we want to be sensitive. They're younger, they're still learning. We don't want to hit them with the full ugly nature of the world until they turn at least you know, 13, 14, and they're already depressed anyway. <laughs> and that's, that's when you do your in-depth unit on, 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 on just how uh, terrible much of history has been. Um, how do you write about something so awful for middle grade readers that doesn't diminish the truth of that awfulness, but that keeps it um, that keeps it sensitive for those young audiences. Um, you know, I don't. I think you don't water things down. As as you know, I've started working at a school. I work at an elementary school now. I've gotten to know um, some kids, and these kids are already going through a lot well before they're thirteen, fourteen. Um, they have their own realities that, you know, would not necessarily have them blinking an eye at, at some very hard situations, um, some very difficult material. So um, obviously I think there's, there are things that as middle grade writers, we can't show certain kinds of violence or use certain kind of language, but we can hint at it. Um, and characters, or I'm sorry, young readers are, really smart and they can handle a lot. So I actually, I don't think you water things down. You have to water down some language and violence, but they can <laughs> take a lot. They're, they're pretty savvy. That makes sense. And unfortunately, uh, children who are still alive, uh, are still alive, children who are alive now, um, I can see plenty of uh, the fruits of that uh, continued racism throughout our history continuing to be present with us. And everyday they life. Can. And that's sort of what I was talking about. Opinions, I hear it every day. And not to go into politics, because I know we of don't do not. that on this blog, but people saying words that are clearly their parents' words, things that, that their parents' opinions have become their opinions. And we are breeding children who don't always ask questions, or some of them. So I, I love when kids ask questions. And it is a time in life when you should be kind of looking around you and saying, hey, you know, you said not to do that, but you're doing that. What's going on? And, you know, that kind of thing. You said to treat people the way you want to be treated. Why do we why do we treat other people like this? You know, so okay, we better we better back off. We better move <laughs> right along. Let's talk about uh... Let's talk about writing middle grade mysteries because you've got a couple of them. What's oh, uh, what's what are your tips for writing a successful middle grade mystery? Oh, did I do another one? I thought I didn't after Nooks and Crannies. Oh, I guess Under the Bottle Bridge is kind of it's a it's, it's a different type it's a different type of mystery. Um, 
first of all, figure out all the details before you start writing. Don't do what I did, children, and and and, and just kind of say, wow, I wonder what happens next. What happens next? Because nooks and crannies, I got, you know, I don't know, two thirds of the way through before I realized like a huge point. I'm like, no way. Then I had to go back and change all these things. And there were two, two plot twists in that book that surprised me. I didn't even realize it until it smacked me in the head. And I said, oh my gosh. And then what did I have to do? I had to go back and write the entire backstory and the entire background, none of which, you know, really got into the actual book, but I needed to know it so that I could put details in but I, I would say weave clues in along the way there's there's some phrase and I don't know what exactly it is but it's something like don't put a gun in the first chapter if no, if no one's going to shoot it in the eighth chapter or something unless somebody's going to shoot the gun don't put it in there so put kind of weave in objects or clues or hints that will be used later so that maybe kind of seem like they're not important, but they will be. Um, also have lots of plot twists if you can, have lots of elements so that you can have red herrings. Not so many that it's confusing, but kind of just, just enough to distract the reader so that they're kind of lulled into a sense of thinking this, and then you hit them on the head with, oh, no, that's not it, but um, yeah. I, if I had to do it again, I would plot out the story backwards. I did some more of that in Under the Bottle Bridge. It's a different sort of mystery. It's a little bit, I would, I would maybe not quieter mystery, but um, it's not, you know, you're stuck in a house with a countess who keeps knives in her purse. <laughs> it's more, yeah, it's a different mystery. But um, yeah, I would just say weave clues in. Um, don't don't underestimate the intelligence of your reader and make it too easy. You know, um, who is a master of a mystery? Oh, Varian Johnson. If you've ever read his oh, books, sure. he he is a master of weaving things in and making you think one thing and then it's another. And yeah, so um, if you want tip, I think you should have him on the blog and ask him that question or on on this. YouTube TV and either one, Mr. Johnson, you're, you're welcome. Mr. To Johnson, please come on. I love the Parker inheritance. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of funny. Sometimes people ask me, why don't you have so-and-so or why haven't you talked to so-and-so as though like all these people are just Your lined friend. up at my door and I'm, I'm holding the clothes like, no, not you. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Johnson has has been invited. Uh, hopefully he'll, he'll hear this. And from your yeah. list to God's ears, I would love to talk with Harriet Johnson. Yes. Yes. Has it never occurred to me to write Judy Bloom? No, it's occurred. <laughs> hey, you never know. Uh, oh, I do. She she wrote me personally, and it was a thrill. But it was a uh, nah. I don't have time. I was like, well, fair enough. Hey, Here's Judy Bloom. You heard that? I got that a from personal. Her. I'm gonna I'm gonna drop names. I got a personal response from her and R. L. Stein, and they were both no's. But I'm like, oh my! If you're gonna get a no, that's the that's the writer you want to get a no from. I would print that no out, and I would frame it. Well, it's saved. Okay, good. Good, good. So, well, enough uh, enough name dropping. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, character and character development because you uh, write very strong female protagonists, and of course, Ben as well, although Ben uh, is accompanied <laughs> by a, a strong female protagonist. So, what is the secret to creating a strong female protagonist aside from obviously being one in real life? Oh, thank you very much. Um, I don't 
know that there's a secret. I actually think that all females and all males for that matter have the ability to be strong. And I don't know what it is. I guess sometimes you're considered strong because of what you're going through, your ability to endure things and kind of persevere, things like that. Um, I'm trying to think about each character. I think a lot of times with female characters, you get adjectives like spunky. She's spunky. And you never hear that about boy characters for some reason. It's like, oh, he's funny and adventurous. But if it's a girl, oh, she's spunky and plucky, <laughs> which, which are wonderful, wonderful characteristics. But I think it's have someone with a sense of adventure, have someone who's as three-dimensional as possible because you don't have to have a super active action hero, super funny character for it to be a strong female. Um, intelligence is always a key um, for me. And, almost, and, and that doesn't mean being great at school. It just means being self-aware and, and kind of, oh gosh, what is a strong female? You know, I've, I've thought about that a lot and I don't set about, writing my books, trying to write strong female characters. I think I just try to picture the character. And, and usually it's, it's some combination of going through difficult things while still managing to be kind. And that might sound a bit soft to some people, but like Tabitha Crumb, she has gone through so much, but she doesn't let the world hurt her. You know, ugly things happen to her, but she doesn't let the world turn her ugly. Um, a lot of grieving happens to, you know, through Becky Thatcher. She, she has a mother who's absent. Her best friend and brother has died, but she manages to find hope. And I think hope is one thing that defines the middle grade novel. That's what I love about writing for middle grade. Um, sometimes adult books, you kind of leave the movie like I did when I ended watching The Revenant and I just felt exhausted and like, oh my God, what's the point? <laughs> Have you ever seen The Revenant? I tapped out after Leo didn't get eaten by the bear. I didn't I even, like, watch, oh, I love I didn't that even part. watch the whole thing. Like people in my, my husband was watching it and I dipped in for parts and I was like, this just looks like, and then I watched the end scene and I won't spoil it for anyone, but I was, yeah. I, I like my middle grade books and I like how no matter how difficult the circumstances are, there is hope at the end and you can do a lot with hope. So I think strong females hang on to that hope. They don't give up. Um, I could use a lot of adjectives, but I think it just depends on the character. That makes sense to me. That's one of the, one of the ways, there's a couple of ways in which I know whether a, a story idea is appropriate for Rob Kent or Robert Kent. Yeah. What's the likely ending? How dark are we going to get? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way. Good way. If the body count's going to be high, it's probably a Robert Kent. Yeah, <laughs> probably, probably not for middle grade. Yeah. Although there isn't there, is there such thing as middle grade horror? Oh, yeah. There's middle, there's middle grade horror. Oh, who is it? Lindsay. Oh, shoot me out a middle grade horror title. Uh, Benicula is probably the. Oh classic. right, Benicula. Yeah. Oh, I read Benicula. I'm trying to think of current ones. I've read scary ghost stories. The middle grade current ones. I can't think of any current middle grade horror. I can think of young adult horror. 
Would you ever write young adult horror? Would you consider altogether now? No, young adult horror. Yeah, it's YA. It was gonna be middle grade uh, originally. It was, it was actually, um, it was gonna be a Banneker bone story because I thought, well, sooner or later, Banneker has to, to face the zombies. Okay. Um, and then I got a little bit into it. I was like, well, I, I knew what the ending was gonna be um, and it wouldn't fit within the Banneker universe. Um, yeah. So I uh, so okay, well, it's got to be some other characters, but I wanted to have a young perspective that was going to be my end to the zombie apocalypse. Is we're going to see some relatively terrible things, but I'll play it nice and we'll keep an innocent perspective throughout. And then um, I got a couple of chapters in, and this is a very unmiddle grade thing to say, but the uh, Ricky and and and, and uh, Michelle come across a um, overturned truck. And they're two zombie parents, and their the car seat is just covered in, in blood and, yeah. and gore. Like, yeah, oh, we're we're not in middle grade territory anymore. So no. I made it like three, three, four chapters in. I was like, nope, that, that guy's a young adult. Yeah. So I just took my thirteen uh, year old and make him sixteen. There we yeah. go, young adult. <laughs> Age him up. Age him up. What uh, coming back to your writing habits? Because I, I it sounds like. Um, you you write when you can, but mm -hmm. when you do get up at, at that 4 a.m. and you're hitting it right away, do you shoot for a specific word count? What does a successful day look like for you? Oh, it's different every time. Um, a lot of times, like I'm, for instance, right now I'm revising. So I go by chapter to chapter. I, I look to revise, you know, I would like to revise. And usually I do it by the week so that I give myself that little extra time if I have a day or two that or off for whatever reason, because I have other things to do. But like, for instance, this week, I would like to get three chapters revised and rewritten in first person, because I'm changing perspective. But when I'm writing, it depends. But this is interesting. I recently needed to get a, a big word count in, not recently, I guess this was a few months ago. And um, uh, Linda Williams Jackson, she wrote a great book called Midnight Without a Moon, mm -hmm. and a sequel, Sky Full of Stars. Um, she and I have been blogging kind of friends for a long, long time. Um, so she and I challenged ourselves to write 20,000 words in two weeks. And I'm not a person who does National Novel Writing Month. I don't speed write usually, but we did daily check. At first we had goals and we checked in every week and we realized quickly that wasn't working. So we had daily goals. We were both very serious about it and we hit our goal. And that was just one of those write as much as you can every day knowing that by the end of the week you have to hit 10,000 so that you can hit 20. I think I hit my 20,000 with like two days to go. Um, but it's a lot of it is, you know how writing is a solitary activity, but I really need my critique partners and my, my friends, you know, it, it really does help checking, checking in with each other. I think uh, gives you a bit more accountability, but um, word count, you know, I, before that sprint, I usually can't write more than 500 words a day. That would be a very good day for me. How about yeah, you? About where I'm at. Yeah, 500 for middle grade, about 1,000 to 1,500 yeah. for uh, an adult story. Yeah. Because middle but grade I, is just more compressed and much harder. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of people, like on Twitter, I've seen authors like, I just wrote 12,000 words in a day. Like, oh, my gosh. My head would explode. 
<laughs> it can be done. I know it can. In fact, yeah. we, uh, a couple of few episodes back, we talked with uh, Daniel Kenny, um, and he gave me the advice that uh, when you need more energy to write, go to a hotel lobby. So I tried it, and he's absolutely right. It was it was a brilliant idea. I never would have thought of it. Really. Uh, Oh yeah, because I well I've gone to coffee shops. I like a nice quiet coffee shop, but you drink through two pots and there's <laughs> it's, it's enough coffee. Um, yeah. But he does a schedule. Schedule. He doesn't write every day because he he has a, a family to take care of as well. Um, he um, will go to a Starbucks for several hours, take a little break, go to another coffee shop for several hours, and then finish up when he needs that energy in a hotel lobby. Because nobody ever asks why you're there. They assume you're staying in one of the rooms. And there's always people coming in and out and around. And there's free Wi-Fi. And you just get energized. And I, well, I know where several hotels are. And I went and I sat there. And by God, he's right. There, there were enough really? people coming in and out. That there was it wasn't, it wasn't a going. distraction? It wasn't a distraction having people come in and out? Okay. No, because I always uh, toss on uh, the uh, earbuds. And okay. um, uh, Spotify mocks me at the end of every year. They, they show me the songs that were most listened to. And I can always tell what book I was writing on because I pick a theme oh, song funny. for every book. And there's like, oh, I, love that. I put a little playlist, like 10, 10, 10 songs or so that put me in the mood of this specific book. So like for this uh, last year, with working on Banneker 2 and 3. Um, it's been a lot of the Dark Knight soundtrack, lots of, lots of movie soundtracks. And okay. It's got words. I, I need to know the words enough to block them out because I'm not really right. looking to hear the music. I'm just looking for something to block out the world. But mm -hmm. with that going on, even with the hotel lobby, you can still feel the people coming in and out. Uh, and you look very industrious, I find, if you're sitting there typing away. While oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. No one's going to come and bother you. <laughs> do not bother me. I'm very important and yeah. I'm working on something crucial. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone gets near you, you just have a little furrow in your brow and look at the screen. So they kind of back off. Well, you know, I uh, I hum uh, even when I'm in public and I shouldn't. Uh, it's a characteristic that Banneker has because I have it. Yeah. Uh, and if I'm really focused on something and it doesn't sound like a song, it just sounds like, mm, but I can hear the song. <laughs> it's just my little wall of sound that says, no world, go away. I need to focus at this moment. You just sound like you're in deep meditation and, you know, you're doing what you need to do to concentrate and... Mm. I've I've found myself singing to myself before. It's embarrassing. The worst in terms of like talking to yourself in public, things like that, is when I'm at the grocery store. The very few times when I'm there without my kids, and I'll be there with my cart and say, "Come on, ladies! <laughs> <laughs> All right, girls, come on!" People are staring at me. There's no one with me, and I just I'm like, I usually have my kids with me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't uh, get so much in trouble if, if somebody sees me writing. It's, pr it's pretty boring. You'll hear me humming. You'll see me focused. But if I'm uh, best time to write, I find is a, a nice long walk. Uh, so if I go out and I'm, I'm walking and I'm thinking through what the characters are saying, occasionally mm -hmm. I'll just say their lines for them and I'll hear them in my head. Okay. And you'll think I'm a crazy person if you see me out there talking. I'm not talking to myself. I'm talking to the characters. You just can't see them. Oh, I'll do that like in the car if, you know, um... I'll have one of the kids put like the camera on just as in black. So it's recording me and then just put the, the phone up beside me and I'll like say pieces of dialogue or like, and then she, when she goes in like 
in the house, there has to be like a red boot there. Like, you know, and I'll, occasionally I'll be so desperate that I'll be in public and I'll be like trying to whisper to myself into my phone so that I can later go through. I've got all these like videos on my phone that are just black blank screen of me like whispering stuff, like lying. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, it's a great way. Writers are strange. Yeah. I don't know where they get that well, impression. No, I think it's a, it's a great tool because it's a great way. If I don't have anything to write with, I can just, if you want to, you know how quickly thoughts slip away and how quickly like dialogue slips away. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's what he says. And just get it down so you don't have to worry about it. And then, you know, when you're writing later, you just press play, type it in, press play, say, what was I thinking? Delete, <laughs> you know, <laughs> go through it. I do. Uh, this is a terrible thing to say when you host a podcast, um, but I do wonder sometimes because I try to get in uh, audiobooks if I'm, you know, I'm in the kitchen or from dusting or whatever I'm doing around the house. Um, I'm doing yard work. It's it's audiobook time. Uh, but I do wonder sometimes if that uh, if I'm um, robbing myself of story ideas that that might come. Maybe I, I could have got the Becky Thatcher idea, but instead of uh, paying attention to what uh, the ideas you should that have were been coming dusting about, with I, was, no uh, I was listening to a podcast <laughs> and, and blocking out the ideas. So this will be the last episode of the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. I have just confirmed that you should never listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for tuning in. Oh, bad marketing. <laughs> bad marketing. Terrible marketing. <laughs> but it is something uh, that I wonder about. Mm. There are, are, are perfectly good times to be listening to things, but I almost wonder, uh, and this is just me personally, if I'm if I'm uh, too too busy um, and not and not doing crucial things other than just taking in input, being entertained on a regular basis, rather than allowing myself to uh, to be completely present in the moment and uh, thinking of, of thoughts that might occur to me if I if I weren't listening to people jabbering away in my headphones. Maybe. I mean, there's also the argument that you might get a great idea from listening to something. So I don't know. You could, you could, you could try going a week without it and see, see if you get any ideas. I don't know. <laughs> there's some, I, I don't listen to audiobooks or podcasts usually when I'm like doing stuff, like just because I have to have like an ear out in case <laughs> anybody needs me. But um, that's one thing that I really wish that I found a way to make more time for um, things like podcasts and, you know, I could be listening to them, you know, when I do certain tasks, when the kids are asleep or, or, you know, I don't know. I don't exercise right now. So I was going to say when I like, when I go running, but that would be a lie. <laughs> I, haven't <laughs> gone, I haven't gone running in like a year. <laughs> well, but it, uh, it would suck up riding time. Yeah, exactly. Seriously. Like, hmm, do I maintain my physical body so I can live longer or do I get those pages in that may or may not go anywhere? I'm going for the pages every time. <laughs> Theoretically, once you're in literature, you, your work will live on forever. So <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Who needs a body? Yep. <laughs> I'm not here, but in a way I am. This novel exists. There you go. Yep. Well, let me uh, ask you a couple of uh, practical questions because I did want to ask you a little bit about your editorial process. I, I, I'm endlessly fascinated by how other writers go about this because I haven't got it down to a T, which is why I'm still doing 30 drafts even at this stage in my career. I, 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 you said earlier that the books are getting harder and I'm yeah. finding that as well. Why is that, you think? 
I think it's because our expectations maybe change um, the further we are on our um, writing journey. I, I mean, I didn't read nearly as much middle grade literature as I do now when I first started writing. And it is becoming harder and harder to, I feel like I have to relearn how to write a story every time. Um, I, I don't know why. I, it's very frustrating. I feel like, why am I not getting better at this? And I think we are getting better at certain elements. It's just we have different expectations that maybe we didn't have before. Like, I wasn't so focused in on, oh, my gosh, this pacing stinks, because I wasn't really thinking about pacing. Or, or um, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, well, in my case, I think it's because I'm uh, in – actively pursuing more difficult projects and to do something further from what I did before. That's, yeah, that's it. I'm, yeah, I've pushed myself a bit too far with this current one. <laughs> it's taking a bit longer, but I'm going to figure it out. I am. It's, it's a big quest and, and yeah. Um, in terms of editing, my process is I write a first draft. I'm one of those people who, I have to get my first pages down before I can keep going or it's gonna bother me. I have to find that voice and that rhythm and I will rewrite those first pages over and over. And sometimes, you know, like the first page stays the same the, the first time I read it because it feels right. But I, I write, 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 which way would it be better? I write, 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 write. And then before I start writing again, I'll go back and do a sweep and clean it up a bit and then I'll continue on. And then the next time I write, I go back and do a sweep of that and write on. So my writing process has become pretty slow, but I find that I end up with a much cleaner first draft that way. Um, but I typically, when I'm done with a first draft, I'll let it rest. Um, I'll work on something else while it's resting. So I'm not just letting it rest. I'll go work on something else and then I'll come back and then I'll clean it up and I'll send it to my critique partners and celebrate because it's out of my hands for a while and they'll get back to me and I love having different critique partners. I think it's so important because each of them has a different style of feedback and each of them is excellent at catching different things. And it's always good to, you know, if you're wondering if, if three out of the four critique partners mention something, you are pretty darn sure that it's a problem, you know? But if maybe one mentions it and says, you might want to look at this and nobody else mentions it and you're on, you know, it's, it's just great. It's always, we always tell each other, use what's helpful, discard the rest. Um, so I'll do that and then it goes to my agent and then we do more revisions and more revisions and then we goes to my editor and we do more revisions. It's, it's fun. I think that sometimes when, when I do school visits, that's something I tell people. First of all, I show them my like eight page long critique uh, or editorial letter that's taller than me. <laughs> I say, <laughs> you get a few red marks. Don't worry about it. Red marks are helping you show how to make your writing better. This is what I got. <laughs> so they're always like, oh, my gosh. So um, I forget what I was going to say. What was I going to say? What was I talking about? Just about oh. editing and how much work uh, goes into it and continues. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Something I always say is you see books on the bookshelf and I don't think they realize that, you know, yes, picture books as well. These books have been edited 10, 15, 20, 30 times, you know, it's a long process. What is your process? Do you, you use critique partners as well? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, uh, thoroughly for this most recent one, they raked me over the coals uh, multiple times, and it was it was ultimately a good thing. But uh, it's it it took longer than I would have thought to write this um, middle grade novel, where I could have written uh, and did write uh, two horror novels within the same time period. Um, and part of that was just me after having written for adults for a little bit and coming back to middle grade, having to retrain myself to write middle grade. Yeah. Uh, and then part of it was just this was a harder story to break because it was more ambitious than the last time around. And I was uh, expanding the universe and doing some things um, that I thought were right, but were uh, far more challenging for me. Uh, and so I, I find that I don't I wouldn't trust in publishing a novel that I didn't hate before the end. Uh, and, and I usually read that, reach that stage of, okay, this is draft 30. I hate you. Why aren't you done? And then we'll break through. And then it's, oh, okay, now I can love you again. And my favorite right. novel is the one that's done. Oh, God bless you. Yes, yes. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it comforting to know that, though? Because when you've been through it three or four times, when you're in that, this is the worst thing in the world. Why would anyone ever want to read this? This would, like, make them... I don't know. I don't know. It would be horrible for them to read. When you're at that stage, you you know you've been there, though. In the back of your mind, you can be, calm down and be like, okay, breathe through it, like let it set and fall back in love with the character and come back to it. So you you know, like the first, I remember the first time I was at that stage, it was with nooks and crannies. And I was just like, this can't be saved. This is terrible. <laughs> I'm glad I kept writing, though. <laughs> And do you go back and uh, maybe this isn't something authors should admit out loud, but I'll admit it. I go back and I read my books. Do you go back and read your earlier books? I, um, no, I, I maybe read snippets here and there. I, I don't part of me, like, you know, there, there's usually once something's in the world, there's always going to be maybe a little something that you might want to change. I know with, um, there wasn't because I, I heard that podcast yesterday, but I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like, you know how you see or you've heard of movie stars who can't sit through their own movies because they'd get the wiggles because oh, sure. <laughs> they don't want to see themselves. I, I don't know. I've Yeah, I haven't. I haven't gone back through and read one all the way through. I might at some point. I just... Feel like I don't know if no, I... it's just a trait of egomaniacs. <laughs> I, I wouldn't encourage oh, it. <laughs> no, no, it's good. And and you know, I've done that before, um, just to be like try to because I, I knew that maybe I there are a couple passages where I felt like I connected with a character, and if I'm struggling with a current book, I'll be like, wait, how did I go back and do that? But most of the time I'm looking at other books and saying, Wait, how did they do that? <laughs> how did they do that? But yeah, I haven't gotten to that point yet, but I, I should, it'd be good for me. It'd be good for self-reflection, but I don't have time for that right now. <laughs> Fair enough. You're getting it done. Keep doing what you're doing. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, school visits. Um, what, what tips would you have uh, for authors that want to arrange school visits? What makes a successful school visit? Well, here's, I have never arranged any. I haven't done a ton of them, but it's always been a matter of people reaching out. They need people to do workshops or panels. I got contacted um, because I have a little flyer if I go to a conference or something that says school visits with a little description of um, what the school visits are about. And I highly recommend that if you ever go anywhere, if you have a local library, 
print something out, see if they'll let you leave a stack of them because you will get contacts about it. And I can't always do them, but um, I would just say um, be professional, be polite, be prompt, ask questions, make sure they are prepared for you, make sure they have the equipment you need. Um, I don't know, and, and make sure you're ready to have fun with the kids. I it's one of the best things is interacting with that elementary school age group. It's just, it's a fun age. They're excited to see authors. They're excited to ask questions. And, and when you talk about how you wrote stuff just like they wrote and they, they can be authors too, and they are writers and, you know, it's try not to stress out too much about it, but don't relax too much either because those kids will keep you on your toes with questions. I would say when you do the actual visit, um, have a nice mix of information and entertainment. I always like to take like these little buzzers. I have four different buzzers. They each make a little sound and do like a little fairy tale trivia, something that's not related to my book so they can all come up and you know play a little game, try to make it interactive if possible. Why not related to your book? Oh, I, I do talk about things related to my book, but I also know that not everyone in the audience of a school visit has always read my book, and I want to make those visits very inclusive. I want to get them excited about stories in general. You know, do I want them to read my book? Yes. Do I want them to buy my book? Yes. But my job usually there is to get them excited about reading, to show them how much I love reading, and that's why I love writing. Um, but yeah. That's so uh, crucial. It's, 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 not a, um, it's not a winner take all type of mentality. The more uh, readers are reading, the more prepared they're gonna be to keep reading when you have another book for them. Yeah, yep, exactly. Especially when you're slow like me and you, you can't hope to do more than two in a year and that's uh, if it's an amazing year. <laughs> two in a year? Oh, two visits in a year, you mean? No, no, two or books. Two books. Uh, that's, two books that's an amazing year, yes. That's very good. But I do, I, I have those friends that can uh, write a book or sometimes even a book and a half a month. Um, and so some of those books read like they were written in a, in a, in a month. But <laughs> there are others that can no. do it successfully, and I just don't possess those skills. No, honestly, I, I've been getting slower and slower, and it's because, you know, I just I feel like I have to polish before I go on, and I need to not do it. That one, the one two-week period where uh, Linda and I challenged ourselves to do 20,000 words, that was very good for me, and it let me know that I do have the ability to do that and I don't have to always be so careful. Um, but yeah, every book is a different, like my writing experience has been so different with it. And the, you know, the toolbox I take into it and, and the plotting versus pantsing has just been different with all of them. Are yours, do you have a typical routine or have yours been different? Uh, as far as the, each book is a little bit different in how it wants to be approached and wants to be written. Um, but as far as uh, how I work, eh, it's pretty pretty standard. I like to pick uh, same time every day. Like I said, 20 minutes of, of, of just bull crap, not, <laughs> not focus. Um, I'm a big staller. Um, that, that's one thing where deadlines will come in handy for me. Um, but I just mm -hmm. moved the deadline up because in school it was always, if it's due Monday morning, about 
8 30 9 o'clock sunday night that's when i'm gonna really dig in and get started after yeah. promising myself i was gonna work all weekend so i just set deadlines for myself and move them yep. way up and every every day is a deadline mm -hmm. very good and that uh that mostly works and gets me through mm -hmm. do you set word count goals i do um but word count goals can be a little bit nebulous uh and, and what i mean by that is um if I didn't hit um, a thousand words for a day, but I did hit, I don't know, say 300 words, but I also managed to outline the next four scenes and I know what's right. coming next and I figured out some some, some things of consequence to the plot. That's not a lost day and my mind was working the whole time. I was exactly. doing the work. Yeah, yeah. I'll do that same thing where I'll go and make some bullet points for the next chapter or something like that so I know where it's headed and that, who was it? Um, what was it? There's some author I read, and I want to say Roald Dahl. I know we've talked about how sometimes your favorite authors, you go back and read their books. <laughs> There's some problems in them, but um, this one I think was something where he was talking about his journals and how he keeps and how he writes. And it was his secret was always end at a place where you want to, you know exactly what you're going to say next and you would like to say it. Just don't come back the next day that way you'll go into a rhythm and you don't come back to a page where you're just like what now what now because it you know exactly what you're going to say next you're in a flow so his suggestion was to not like hold yourself back if you're excited to keep writing and then come back the next day and kind of reread where you were at and you know ride that wave of excitement into your writing day that's smart i try not to uh, right to the end of a chapter or if I do I go ahead and start the next chapter so I'm not coming yeah. in cold the next day yeah that's smart I saw a BBC video with uh, Rolf Dahl uh, toward the end of his life and he was still living on a farm um, and he uh, and Rolf Dahl's fascinating because he you know he was one of the inspirations for James Bond um, back in the day oh because he's a RAF pilot uh-huh well I mean he was also well, well, a spy. I mean, he was also yeah, I, I've read some similar things about him. It's very he charming. He wined and dined American women for his country. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I read. That's funny. <laughs> but he, uh, I saw this video and he would go to his uh, little writing shack in the back and he had his comfy chair and he would sit there. I don't remember how many pencils it was, but he had, a, it was like 10 or 15. He felt he needed to have those pencils fully sharpened and he did it. He didn't do it with a pencil sharpener. Uh, he did it with a knife. And he sat there and he whittled them down and he made sure he had all his pencils and he lined them up perfectly and then he could start, which whatever, uh, whatever routine gets it done. Meanwhile, we, we, our, our generation, we just go on the internet for our 10 to 15 minutes. We don't, <laughs> <laughs> I do that too. I have to check the news, make sure things are okay and then go into it. I should, I should try whittling pencils maybe. I have tried uh, after my, uh, my 20 minutes and during that 20 minutes, uh, I'm reading the internet, but I try not to read news because then that's just going to lead me down a rabbit hole of depression. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But if I always see what other authors are doing, I've got a, a few different websites. I always check out Literary Rambles uh, mm -hmm. and see what they're up to. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mrs. Yingling's uh, and her reviews, I always check mm -hmm. out to see what Mrs. Yingling's up to. Um, so I, I try to check out Writing Plus blogs and imagine myself appearing them on them if I could ever finish the novel. <laughs> that, and that uh, motivates a little bit. Oh, good, good, good. 
We're talking a little bit about marketing, and I know that it's getting late, and you've got uh, an early call for those um, uh, those who are listening and not and not watching us live. Um, we're recording this at uh, a little after 10 o'clock at night, and you've got a 4 a.m. wake-up call. Uh, but I do want to ask you about um, marketing, and then I'll have one more question for you. We'll call it a show. But marketing, what has been your most effective way to market books? What's worked out the best for you? I am probably not the best person to ask about marketing. Um, I think a lot of writers are introverted by nature, and I'm I'm one of them. I I'm not good at marketing my books. And I'll give you an example of what kind of person I am. So I used to work in a movie theater in high school and, you know, people would come in and see the prices for, you know, you know, a box of raisinets or whatever, like 450, that's it. Or whatever it was back in the day, like 350, that's insane. Or, you know, or like a tub of popcorn. They would complain about the prices because obviously you, a lot of people ended up spending more, like at the candy counter than they do on the tickets or although tickets are really expensive now. Anyway, I would always tell them, Hey, listen, there is a bulk section of candy right over there across the street at that grocery store. It's a good deal. No one's going to check your purse, like save some money. Like, do you know how many sour patch kids you could get instead of having that little tiny packet of sour patch kids? So like I should have been like, I was, that was not, me being a good employee and I probably shouldn't I'm sorry I'm sorry movie theater <laughs> I apologize but I was doing it for the people those prices were really high <laughs> um, but, but marketing is awful yeah but marketing my books um, I don't I don't know any all I know is that it's good to be genuinely invested in other people um so that when you do need to ask for help like i'd been following blogs and following you know people on twitter and retweeting and doing things genuinely um for years you know before i got published so that when it came time to maybe need to ask people you know on literary rambles like inquire like hey i've got a book coming out I can legitimately say, I've been following your blog for five years. I love your blog, you know, things like that. Making relationships, I think, is huge. It's, you know, it's one of those things just like getting a job. It's not always um, what you know, it's who you know. Um, so I think just making those relationships with bookstores, trying to keep up with them, making relationships with fellow authors, supporting fellow authors, um, supporting bloggers. Um, Supporting whoever you can so that when it comes time to maybe a time when you need a little support, you've got you've got your crew, you know. That makes sense. Yeah. So network and uh, get with the I'm always looking for the people that are smarter than me and they're easy to find. Uh, they're, uh, they're all around. Um, yeah. But uh, I'm always looking for who's got it going. What are they doing? I'm not doing. I'm going to go talk to them and find out. Oh, uh, well, yeah, I, I would love some marketing tips because I, I should probably be using them. But yeah, that is not my forte. Much like pacing in my novels, marketing is not my forte in, in the business side of writing. But have you? what are some good tips that you've gotten from other people? Maybe you can give me maybe two good tips. Two good tips. Uh, start a podcast. <laughs> so there's That's that. a good tip. Start a blog. There's two. Yep. Um. Susan K. Quinn uh, told me a couple of things, and I'm a 
dummy because I said I said her name and now I can't remember what exactly she said. Um, but she uh, had a lot of great advice specific for marketing and for coordinating um, uh, 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 coordinating with readers ahead of time to get yourself an advanced crew that's eager to read the book, that's already excited, uh, that's out and about. Um, that was a good tip. Um, I know that um, uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, has been pointed out to me, and I think I think this is true, uh, is less about finding new readers and more about forming connections with the readers that you already have. I like that, yeah. There's a lot of teachers and librarians that are on Twitter as well that it's nice to kind of get to know them as well, so. Yep. And just let me ask you uh, this: um, what what keeps you writing? What brings you back to the 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 the, the story every day? Um, it's the characters. You know, you fall in love with these characters, and they really start to become alive to you. And and you owe them. You owe them a good ending. You know, you owe those zombie characters a good ending. Well, I guess you. You should have. <laughs> Maybe you didn't always get a bad example. <laughs> they got the ending they wanted. They were in a zombie novel. Yes. They, they understood. No, you're right. Yeah, they seemed happy with their. I, I could hear a couple of them saying, Rob, it's, it's okay. Somebody has okay. to be eaten. I, I had it coming. Together now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, that book was so good. And Okay, this is an aside. I'm gonna I'm gonna okay. bust up the question and let all you readers out there know I am not a horror fan. I scary things scare me. I don't know what the phobia is, fear of horror novels, but um, I respect Rob. I've known Rob for a long time. I love his blog. He's clearly a brilliant writer. You can see that just in the style and the voice of his blog. So I gave Altogether Now a chance. And yes, there's gore. And yes, there's some language, but I, I loved it. It's a zombie novel with heart. If you that well, I was gonna make some eating joke, but that's brains with zombies. But um, like, and you talked about it being like so fast paced and so action packed, and it was. But I, I mean, there is a lot. Like, there's so much depth to that novel. And I, you know, I went to middle school and high school in Indiana, so that's a setting that I grew up in. I mean, some of the religious themes in that book. Um, just, I mean, the relationships in that book, that was a heartfelt book. And I'm going to spoil stuff if I keep talking about oh, it. <laughs> I'm, I'm already blushing uh, too no, wildly. No, I was, <laughs> I was so impressed. And I, I, as I told you in email, I'm going to have a hard time um, reading pizza delivery because pizza is my favorite food. And, and even that cover, I can't get past. I don't think I could get past the cover. But I, I will try at some point for you, Rob. But... All together now, you guys, my intro to zombie novels was Pride and Prejudice and Zombies because I like Pride and Prejudice. So uh, this is a different, this is a more like pure zombie novel. It has so much heart in it. And you will find yourself just in awe of what this writer is doing behind these action scenes that are going on. The emotion is just, I mean, the emotional arc is, it got me. You got me with a zombie novel. Good job. <laughs> I think I think that's about as a high a point as we're we're gonna get on the show. I'm very flattered. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> good, good, good. 
Uh, Jess, where uh, where can esteemed audience find you online? Where can they track you down and find out more about you and your books? Sure. Um, I am not super active on Facebook, but um, my one social media right now um, is Twitter. And I am my handle is capital J, capital S underscore Lawson. And that's where you can find me most of the time. I also have a website that is jessicalawsonbooks.com. I keep my um, news and events up to date for the most part if I have any new ones, although I haven't yet switched the fact that my next book, How to Save a Queendom, will be coming out in spring of 2021. It's my first fantasy. It's got a tiny wizard about that big. It's got some bigger wizards too. It's set in a fantasy um, land called Meriden, a queendom rather, rather than a kingdom. Um, yeah, bit of a quest story, bit of um, some wall themes in there. <laughs> I, I heard there's a chicken no, involved no. in some way. There's a chicken involved. I have three chickens. They're all named after female literary characters. Hermione, Katie Wu, and Mrs. Teaberry. Oh, so that's wonderful. I, I love my chickens so much I had to put one in a book. This one's name is Peck. And it's uh, my main character is named Stub. And Peck is her best friend. She's really her only friend in the world. And she kind of accompanies her on this journey across a queendom to... Try to save the day. <laughs> Get me. Uh, I'm always up for free books. That's one of my main motivations. Is since I started blogging, people get me books. Get yeah. Get me a copy and come back and we'll do a we'll do a deep dive as soon as it's available and the esteemed audience can read along. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I'd love that. Jessica, thank you so much for for making the time for this. This was an absolute joy to talk with you. Well, it was uh, an honor to get your email asking, Rob, and it was great to have a chat with you. I know you and I have been friends for a while, so it was nice to actually get some time to talk. It was. And yep. esteemed audience, uh, no, what's my wrap-up? Oh, check out uh, middlegradeninja.com. Make sure you come back next week, uh, hopefully Monday, possibly a later day, depending on Mr. Older's schedule. We'll be chatting with author Daniel Jose Older. Uh, May 15th, Wednesday. Banneka Bones and the Alligator People. It's coming. It's going to be amazing. Make sure you get your copy. If you can't wait that long, go ahead and download a free copy of Banneka Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, and that's about, That's it for the announcements. Uh, Jess, I have been asking our guests to sign us off with the sign-off phrase, hi-ya, and what have you, so we sound all kinds of ninja-like. Will you sign us off? Absolutely. Hi-ya, and what have you. <laughs>